Tom, come on up. Put that on. Put that on. All right, good to see everybody. You're here. I know it's warm. Uh, we should have had a sermon on hell today, but uh, that's not going to be the case. It's all a matter of perspective. If it was minus 20 out there, you would be really thankful for the auditorium temperature. But since it's going to be 65 today, you're probably not as fired up. But uh, anyway, some uh, real good friends of ours from 30 years ago, Joe and Judy Diltz right here, are uh, visiting with us today. And uh, they're going to do communion a little bit later. But uh, we've known Joe, Joe and Judy from uh, when we first moved to Cincinnati, I, and that was 30 years ago, I guess, and uh, have been close ever since. And then Katie's here today. She's, uh, she's not delivering babies and saving lives, so uh, she, can, she can be with us for a little bit. Josh, you're fired up about that, aren't you? Yeah, amen. Uh, we're going to continue on in Ephesians 4. Uh, if you remember last week, we uh, did the first part of Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, a number of things were discussed in that. Uh, one was, this was the pivot in the whole book of Ephesians, where now Paul goes from telling everybody what they have in Christ to now expecting them to do some things because they are in Christ. And we looked at three things. One, I urge you is how it starts out. Uh, then he says there is one and lists a number of things that are only one. And then a little bit later in, the, in the, that first section, it talks about us doing some work as Christians. And all three of these things are potentially offensive, especially to Americans. Because one, we've got someone telling us what to do. We don't like that. Uh, someone limiting our choices when he says there's only one, and then, yeah, I'll work, but don't tell me to work, and then maybe I'll work harder if you don't tell me to work. And, uh, you know, we just wrestle with some of that kind of stuff. All of these things uh, that we're going to talk about today, and really the rest of the, the book of Ephesians, would seem kind of burdensome, oppressive, and perhaps even legalistic, if you didn't study and understand the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. So everything that we're, talk, we're talking about today, things that we talked about last week, and then also when Ben starts chapter 5 next week and finish up, finishes up chapter 6, all of these things should be embraced from the standpoint, God has given me so much, I am so blessed, I'm so thankful I get to avoid a lot of the pitfalls that the rest of the people in this world experience that I am more than willing to work and do the things that God wants me to do to change my life because I know all those changes that He's calling me to make actually benefit me, not just Him. Amen? Yeah. And so we get to uh, verse 17. Let's look there a minute. Got to pause for the glasses, because you know what happens if you don't have your glasses on when you're 67 years old. 
Uh, He starts out, verse 17, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. We'll just pause right there for a minute. Once again, he says, I insist on this, kind of going along with some of the things we talked about last week. But he's talking specifically about Gentiles here, but we know from the reading our Bibles and understanding a little bit about first century uh, church history that there's several groups that are at play here. You have the Jews, and then you have the Gentiles, and then you have the Christians, then you have the Jews that became Christians and are now Christians, and the Gentiles that became Christians and are now in the church. And so you have this mix of people that make up the church. It would be very drastic and different uh, to think about it in this way because there's so many different personalities and so many different backgrounds that are now coming to play in just one church. Even in this room, we're not a monstrous church, we're not a mega church, but even in this room, we have people from all different backgrounds, different countries, different perspectives in life, different ages, and so many other things. And that, as we know, can even cause some issues between us. Uh, If you're visiting, uh, yes, we do have issues in the church And if your church doesn't, you don't know what's really going on in your church, because every church has some issues from time to time. Uh, I stumbled across this little book that talked about the makeup of the first century church. I just want to read a couple paragraphs here. It says, it's first necessary to briefly discuss the makeup of the early church. We must remember that the first church was made up of a very diverse group of Jews. There were also Jerusalemites, Galileans, Hellenists, fishermen, Pharisees, illiterates, uncultured poor people, high society rich people, ex-prostitutes, priests, tax collectors, law abiders and law breakers, Israel and the diaspora Jews. It is inevitable that there was conflict and clashes of opinion within this group. Thus, we find so many verses and scriptures on unity and oneness, and also we see so many verses against prejudice and favoritism. It is a New Testament to God's grace and power that this plethora of different opinions even managed to function, let alone survive. In fact, it seems evident that the New Testament was written in part to unify this group and start to consolidate doctrine before the wolves could come in and do so much damage to the sheep. We, we have this as the backdrop of what we read about in many of the churches. The church in Ephesus was a city of, uh, the city was about 250 to 300,000 people, they say. And within that, some scholars predict that maybe as many as 20 to 50,000 people were actually disciples. They were converted during that time. And so you think about 20 to 30, they didn't meet all together for obvious reasons, but twenty to 30,000 now coming from all these different backgrounds, 
And not just Jews that became Christians, but if you know just a little bit about the Jews, they came from a lot of different perspectives or sects of Judaism. Uh, that was sects, not the other word. Uh, just to clarify, all right? And, uh, and even the, the pagans or the, uh, the Gentiles, they came from different perspectives as well. As well. Some pagan uh, backgrounds, some uh, worshipped the, the whole idea of philosophy, and then others, like a lot of people in our society, they're just non-believers or agnostic, maybe atheists. And now all these people are coming to mix in this church, and Paul is trying to navigate through all of this stuff in this letter. Amen? Uh, we see uh, with the Jews, there are some flaws in their thinking. <clears throat> these are not my observations. These are things that Jesus actually said about the Jews. And uh, one, they're locked into a generational religion. It goes back hundreds and thousands of years. They've been taught this way and trained this way. And so their minds are fixated on what was passed down to them from one generation to another, from one family ancestor to another family ancestor until the present day. And so for someone to come in and introduce an idea that goes contrary to what they always believed is something that they had to wrestle with in order to make it as Christians. The Jewish system was oftentimes legalistic. They were more focused on how do I come across on the outside rather than who I really am on the inside. Jesus had a lot to say about that even in his opening Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Uh, they were blind, Jesus said, to the idea of him being the Messiah and then Often, they're referred to as people with hardened hearts. And so this is, these are some of the obstacles that someone from a Jewish background had to overcome in order to be a part of the church, which is amazing, isn't it? And they did that. Thousands and thousands of people. The early church was made up primarily of Jews that had converted to Christianity and also called Judeo-Christians uh, from that perspective. Then we have some flaws of the Gentiles as well that are actually outlined in this verse 17 and following. Let's go back to verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And then now he explains what that is. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. That's quite the description of an entire group of people or category of people called the Gentiles. It's not surprising then if you think about how devout and religious the Jews were 
why they would lump everybody else into this one category called Gentiles. But think about the Gentiles. This was particularly offensive to them because they were not thought of as individuals. They were just classified as one group of non-Jews and actually the Jews would look down on them and you know how all that stuff goes from reading your Bibles. Uh, But, uh, you know, now here we have people that this was their background and now they had to overcome those things in order to be a part of the church. We have a great example here then in the church in Ephesus and really all the first century that there's people from a religious background and a people from a worldly background that now all merge together and make up the Christian church that Jesus died to establish. And so with that kind of in the background, can you imagine that there would be conflict among these people? Different ways of thinking, different ways of doing things. Some people would call one thing sin, and other people would say, well, what do you mean? We've been doing this all of our lives. Nobody thought of it as sin. And this struggle that went on in the early church in order to find some kind of balance, some kind of harmony, and as we'll finish out in a little bit, we'll talk about how they had to have productive conversations that actually led to peace. Amen? Uh, In verse 20. You, however speaking to the church here, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on a new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Some people have accused Christians of being so limiting, like it's such a select group who, and, and judgmental. And some of those criticisms, I think, depending on who says them and what the motive is behind it, some of those allegations of being critical and judgmental and self-righteous can actually be true. Uh, I've done it in the past. I'm sure many of you have made statements that you would like to take back to other people. But nonetheless, God is opening the door to every single category of people in this world that we live in. That's part of why we're all here. We're not all the same. We're not a homogenous group of people. But because we all recognize that Jesus is the Savior decided to make Him Lord, this is now the one thing that bonds us together. It's the glue that helps us stick together as individuals and as a church. And not just the Grand Rapids Church, but you know from our association with Lansing and Kalamazoo and Detroit, the greater Midwest, connection with churches around the world in India and the Baltics and things like that, we're we're all one, the Bible says in spite of how different we all are and different things that we bring in to the church. Absolutely anybody in this world 
regardless of their background, regardless of how they live, God is willing to accept. God will take everybody, but He does expect everybody to change in order to be a part of His family. That's why it says here, you were taught to take off your old self and you were taught to put on a new self. The old self is being corrupted or has been corrupted and the new self is being renewed. It's a beautiful picture of what it's like to be in the church. We see ourselves starting out at one place and then as the years unfold, we see ourselves maturing and developing into something else that God has been working on us to create for many, many years. But it starts with a decision that every individual has to make. Nobody can make it for you. God can't even make this for you. I decide I want to take off this old self. It's a conscious decision and an awareness of what God wants from my life. Many people go through this life and identify with Christianity, would say that they believe in God, even identify Jesus as the Savior and celebrate things like Christmas and Easter and all of these things are good, but never take the time to ask, you know, God, what do you want from me? What is it you're looking for in my life? What do you want me to do with my life? And if we ask those questions and say a prayer and maybe even ask some other people that have a pretty good idea of what God wants, then we begin to see, hey, in order for me to live the life that God has called me to live, there's some things that I've got to lay by the wayside. I've got to take it off, I've got to lay it down, and I've got to pursue something else. And that's the second part of repentance. It's not only turning away from things that are wrong, but now it's turning toward things that are good. Take off, put on, and the putting on is the fun part. The taking off is not necessarily so much fun. Right now, you may be uncomfortable because it's hot in here. Take off a few things, but please don't take off everything. You know what I'm saying. When it's colder... You're going to put on some real nice slippers, some warm socks, and you're going to put on a fleece jacket and all this other kind of stuff, and you're going to be glad that you did. And so much of this is exactly the same as it is with Christianity. It is for our benefit and to God's glory that we take some things off and put some things on. Amen? The last part of Ephesians 4, think back to how many different types of folks there are in the church. Think back to all the different conflicts or potential conflicts that could be there. This happens within a family. Sometimes you get in conflict with yourself. You know, you, you know what I'm saying. I, I hope I'm not the only one that does this. Otherwise, no. You, you too, Steve? Good, I feel better now. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times, people will do one of two things. They'll either 
put things under the carpet, not deal with them, and let whatever it is they're thinking or feeling build and fester and it just turns into bitterness, resentment, anger, and every once in a while all this stuff that gets built up comes out in a loud burst toward another individual or groups of individuals. The other way that sometimes people not in a great way handle this stuff is they just blurt out whatever they want, however they want, to whomever they want, and they don't really care about any kind of conversation taking place. They're just venting what they have on their mind and what bothers them. Neither approach is good, and neither approach is something that God wants us to take. And so we have this last section here in Ephesians 4, and I'm just going to call it the lost art of effective communication. Everybody communicates one way or another, but it's not always effective, you know what I mean? Uh, Sometimes our communication does more harm than good. Uh, sometimes we've got to learn how to keep our yappers shut and bite our tongues until the proper time, or maybe we get in the right frame of mind to be able to have a godly conversation. And so in this section, it's too much for us to delve into today, but I, I'm going to hit just a few things. In uh, verse 25, Paul says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, And speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. This deals with the idea of sweeping things under the table. We can't do that. We've got to be able to speak truthfully. And in a little bit, we're going to find out how to speak truthfully. But this happens with parents and children. Uh, Everett, if you're ticked off at your dad. I know you'd never be ticked off at your mom, but maybe your dad once in a while. Uh, You've got to speak, but in a proper way. Uh, I'm not picking on you guys. I just happened to look at him right there. He was right there. Uh, So put off the falsehood. Stop pretending that everything's okay. And let's have a godly, honest conversation about what's really going on. We're all members of one body. Then he says, In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. We would probably put anger in the category of sin, but actually anger in and of itself is not sin. It's an emotion that God gives us. There are things that Jesus certainly was angry about. You remember when he went into the temple and turned upside down the tables and made a whip, not just found a whip, he made a whip and started cracking it. He was ticked off by the hypocrisy and the disrespect and the dishonoring of God. But there is something that happens with anger. It it stirs our emotions so much that sometimes we lapse over into other things that would simply be called sin. The way we speak, what we do with our anger, how we express it, the actions that our anger leads us to take, 
so many of these things. He says, in your anger, do not sin. And then he says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. If you took that literally, that means in the summer months, like right around the end of June, you've got a whole lot of time to take care of your anger, right? You've got hours. But now, as we're entering into the winter solstice, now, now your time is compressed. You've got to deal with stuff in a much quicker way because you have smaller amounts of time. I don't think this was intended to be taken literally. I think what Paul is saying here is let's deal with stuff as it comes up. Don't let it slide. Don't let it linger forever and ever. Uh, Lori and I, a long, long, long time ago, going back 43 years, we didn't always do this. And then somewhere along the way, some couples got a hold of us in a good way. And uh, taught us, look, you, you can't let your anger go on forever. You can't give each other the cold shoulder. You can't wait it out until you forgot about what you were angry about and then not expect to have these things still come up in the future. And so we tried to, many, many years ago, adopt this policy that we're going to resolve whatever it is in our marriage that day And if not that day, then we both agree to put it on hold, and then we'll pick it up again the very next day. If for some reason we can't work it out between the two of us, and there have been many times that we haven't been able to work some things out between the two of us, then we were also encouraged to be committed to having some other people there that can help you talk through whatever the conflict is. I think that's a great policy for all of us to adopt, whether you're married or single or uh, whatever other category (laughs) there may be. Uh, But this policy then prevents the devil from getting a foothold in your heart and in your life and driving a wedge between people. I want you to think about, just for a second, the pause was deliberate. Are there people like that right now in your life? That there is this wedge. There is a place for the devil to put his foot and create that wedge or that gulf at times that prevents you from being close to that individual or maybe not best friends, but at least friendly toward one another, these are things that we have to resolve. So many of us, if we don't feel good about a conversation, then it's easy to write that person off, go the other way, run out of the room, pout, whatever it is, and it never produces anything good. It only divides people, which literally divides the church then, because we haven't dealt with things the way God talks about it. We go on. He says, if you haven't been stealing, you probably shouldn't do that. Uh, If you're not working, you probably should. And then down in verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, 
that it may benefit those who listen. Now Paul tells us how to have some productive conversations. Speak, yes. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. But as you do speak and initiate these conversations, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Sometimes the first thing out of our mouths is critical and judgmental and we've already determined that this person is evil before we've even been able to engage in a conversation. Verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Then he says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, it's never a good idea, especially in the church, (laughs) slander, along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This little section of Scripture, verses 25 through 32, will literally bless your life If you accept it and embrace it, it will help keep the church unified and strong. It will help every relationship that you've ever had or ever will have if you embrace what Paul is saying right here. This is a great church. We've been members now. Well, I don't know. Pat, are we back on the membership yet? Have we worked our way back on? Probationary membership. All right. So... You know, I was gone for a month overseas, and uh, Pat took me off the membership because I had missed so many services. And uh, when I came back a couple weeks ago, uh, I told her I really want to get back on. This is all in jest. I hope if you're visiting, this, this is a joke, all right? And so uh, I, I've told Pat every time I've been in attendance, and uh, she gave me extra credit for preaching last week, I think, and, uh, and this one too, right? I totally forgot why I'm even talking about this right now. (laughs) You know, I just really lost what I was going to say. What was I saying? Does it matter even? Oh, yeah, the family's staying together, and uh, yeah, that's about it. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So, we've got a great church. It's a small church. We're very diverse, even though from a snapshot we may all look very similar, we're still very diverse in our backgrounds, in our thinking, our experiences, and God wants to make us one. That's been the whole theme of this whole study that we've been uh, uh, going, going through in the book of Ephesians, and now here's some nuts and bolts on how we can make that happen. Amen? So, I'm going to have Joe and Judy come on up, and they're going to tell you what I meant to say.